Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness, I was away last week. Uh, I was in Iceland with my family, and I I felt very blessed because I did get to see something I've always wanted to see, which is the northern lights, the aurora borealis, which were... It was was even more amazing than I than I thought because while the colors aren't always as bright as you get in the photographs, partly because of the way the photography picks up uh, the light, um, and also because of how cold it was, and luckily it wasn't that cold. But the dynamics of these things were just extraordinary. It was such a surreal experience because. While I'm perfectly b- believing the fact that, you know, solar flares are affecting the magnetosphere, which is in turn charging certain ionized particles of various chemicals in the higher atmosphere producing these effects, the actual experience is so bizarre and psychedelic and mystical and marvelous, more so than I had expected. It was very spectral, these sort of patterns uh, 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 and shifting colors like curtains or, or specters through some strange kind of fog in the distance. I mean, really, really haunting stuff. And I, I somehow knew that I would uh, uh, thrill to the, that experience. And, and indeed, it was a marvel. So if you can ever get yourself up to northern climes, uh, and luck out on a, on a, on a clear night. It's uh, more than worth the effort. Um, t- uh, today we're going to be talking about time, time loops, precognition, and some pretty far out ideas. And before we dive in and I introduce our guest, Eric Wargo, uh, I just want to drop one little precog dream of my own. Uh, it would happen a number of years ago. I did not write it down, so you could accuse me of, of false memory, and we'll be getting to some of the skeptical, the usual skeptical moves uh, and their their validity and their excesses, I'm sure, later in this conversation. Um, but I dreamed about a, 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 U, a UFO. A UFO was coming. Uh, people were gathered on this uh, plane, this sort of platform in the, in the uh, Caribbean, and people were very excited about the UFO coming, and, it, and, and they were kind of dancing around. And then the, the UFO appears ab- above. It opens up this sort of oculus in the central part of the, of the craft and then begins blasting all of the people who were awaiting the UFO. And it was a pretty striking dream. And not very long after that, um, I went to see Independence Day. Now... The fact that the Independence Day was in the news and there was already the hype or whatever may definitely have brought the the idea of dreaming about a UFO into my mind. But that was not what shocked me, third, uh, third, you know, whatever, 45 minutes into this film, where the first time you see the uh, evil alien UFOs, the image of the the craft and how the Oculus opened up was terrifyingly similar to the one that I had seen in my dream about a week and a half before, maybe two weeks before. So much so that I I actually kind of, sc- <laughs> well, I wouldn't say screamed, but sort of like went, ah! <laughs> in my seat, 
uh, and felt, you know, all manner of, uh, of shivers and, and other weird signifiers in my body, uh, as I could just not at all deny the similarity between these two, two events. And, uh, with that, just, just a mild taste and a, just a little bit more of a support to one of, uh, Eric's, um, main starting points with this crazy book that is, as Jeff Kripal said, Jeff Kripal called this book the most, and Jeff's been on the show before, he's a scholar of the paranormal, of the mystical, of popular culture, and my uh, former thesis advisor, he, he described time loops as the, the most significant intellectual work on a paranormal topic in the last 50 years. So that's no joke coming from uh, Mr. Kripal who spent a lot of time reading uh, paranormal material, a lot more than I have. Uh, I'll admit that right off the bat. Um, but one of the main points that, that, uh, that Wargo starts off about is that while on some level, the idea of precognition, of being able to get, get a message from the future, essentially, is so contrary to our uh, normal way of thinking that we, we would rather build up very elaborate explanations of things rather than look at that particular possibility, however parsimonious it may seem, it may turn out to be. We are, we're, we're so resistant to it. And yet, if we look closely, especially look closely to our dreams, we may find uh, that th- this phenomenon is a lot more common than we think it is. Now, those of you who are skeptics are already coming up with the usual explanations, law of large numbers, you know, biases, parsimony, all this kind of stuff. We, we're, we're not going to ignore these issues. And indeed, the fact that, that, uh, that Eric, who is also a science writer and knows his stuff, spends a lot of time looking at the validity of a lot of skeptical responses to paranormal effects, takes their argument seriously, but also is uh, wise enough to uh, call them on their own uh, biases, if you will, and the, uh, the ways in which these arguments serve to uh, blinker our own awareness of our own experience and also to think more rationally about some of the reasons that things might be weirder than they at first uh, seem. So Time Loops is a, is a remarkable book because other than the central impossible idea of precognition, impossible according to our dominant way of thinking about the world, it is an enormously compelling, very reasonable, very rich uh, engagement with all manner of issues around consciousness and time and memory. Eric draws from science, he draws from uh, memory studies, he draws from the humanities, and he draws very strongly and very richly from the psychoanalytic tradition, and, and really picking out what's valuable in Freud, in Jung, and in Lacan, um, in terms of the ways in which they, they play off these issues. Uh, uh, so it's just a, it's a remarkable feast, and for that reason we're going to do, uh, do a two-parter, my first two-parter. Uh, and so we'll do, we'll be continuing the conversation with Eric next week. Okay. That was a very long introduction. Eric, thanks so much for joining, uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
your your book is so rich. There's so many uh, places to start. There's so many entrees into this world. Um, but while while I do want to turn relatively quickly to some of the more hard evidence for uh, aspects of precognition, um, because I, I, at least it, it helped me as someone who's sort of naturally skeptical um, and also resists the idea that of a determined space-time block universe, but we'll, we'll get to that, um, that uh, while I want to get to that stuff soon, I still think it's best to start out with the fact that you are um, a lifelong dreamer and recorder of dreams and that it was indeed in the context of dreaming uh, that you first sort of started to read paranormal literature and became intrigued with this, I know, this notion of precognition. So... I know that you were recording your dreams and, and you were deeply into dreams for a long time before you got interested in precognition. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that transition. How did your own, your own studies with your own dreams start to open up the, these, in, in some ways, more impossible doors? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I consider my interest in dreams kind of serendipitous, really. I, I in... I'd always always been conscious of my dreams and aware of my dreams and interested in my dreams even back when I was a kid a teenager you know, I, I can even remember dreams from when I was a child but um, and then in graduate school in anthropology this is in you know 1989 1990 I I, uh, I really got heavily into into uh, psychoanalytic theory and uh, so I went up reading a lot of Freud a lot of Lacan uh, and other and other folks, and it just gave me this you know really wonderful toolkit for thinking about my dreams. Uh, it's a toolkit that I no longer you know completely agree with, as as any reader of the book will will see. But still, it was it 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 it, it planted that seed that dreams are important. Pay attention to them, and of course, then later. You know, if if one continues a, a dream work path of any kind, you know you'll uh, you'll wind up reading Jung and getting a whole different perspective on your dreams. And, uh, and I wound up, you know, sort of incorporating it into into my kind of spiritual growth uh, and uh, even into my Zen practice. Uh, you know, ultimately I wound up discovering Buddhist dream yoga and, and all that. So I wound up with, um, you know, I've just always been interested in dreams and I, it, and although I had <clears throat> here and there noticed dreams that seemed uncannily to, uh, uh, predict something that happened, you know, imminently in my life, you know, usually the next day, uh, I would just kind of shrug and just sweep it under my mental rug um, because it just didn't fit, you know, any of the, th any of the dream theories that I, uh, I had. Uh, and it honestly was only after I, it was actually UFOs that got me into, into parapsychology and precognition, uh, oddly enough. So I love the, your, your precognitive dream about the UFO is just, is wonderful. I mean, that's, that's, that's perfect example of how it works. But, uh, it was actually when I saw, uh, a couple of UFOs in 2009. Uh, they were not spectacular, you know, close encounters of the third kind or anything like that. They were close encounters of the first kind, I believe, you know, just sort of lights moving strangely. It got me into reading the literature and that, and that 
uh, in that literature, uh, ultimately, you know, if you are serious about it, you'll wind up reading Jacques Vallée, uh, the, you know, great uh, ufologist. Uh, and he's also, uh, but he's, he, he also was involved very much in the, uh, in the ESP research going on in the 1970s in California in the, um, at Stanford Research Institute. And so you wind up uh, encountering this literature of parapsychology. And really it was his kind of linking of, or his attempt to kind of figure out how UFOs related to psychic phenomena that drew me into reading the parapsychological literature. Because I had all my, you know, all my adult life, I had, I had really been very much a skeptic about ESP. I, I, you know, I really was not that much of a skeptic about things like UFOs. And once I saw one, you know, and did my due diligence and realized, hey, there's really something here. There's a there there, you know. Um, but I could, I, you know, psychic phenomena just didn't didn't mesh with my materialist, uh, you know, my materialist edu- my materialist scientific education and my materialist upbringing. My parents were scientific psychologists. Um, and it just, you know, I just basically had swept ESP under the, or under the rug or, or, or whatever, uh, and rejected it my whole life and not really given it much thought, but it just was sort of a knee jerk rejection. But anyway, so that encounter, the, you know, reading Jacques Vallée and then reading, uh, Russell Targ and just the whole, uh, you know, all those, all those guys writing about, you know, remote viewing and, and, uh, and, you know, Dean Radin and, and other parapsychologists, you know, I started realizing, Hey, there's uh, maybe my <laughs> knee jerk rejection of this stuff is, uh, uh, is wrong. And, and then, and it was sort of just in the course of that. And then noticing, paying more attention to my dreams and those bits of dream precognition or apparent dream precognition, uh, realize, Oh wait, you know, maybe this, maybe dream precognition is a, is not only a real thing, but that's really, it could be a, a constant thing. It's, it really got me to rethink, uh, not only rethink my attitudes toward parapsychology, but, you know, ultimately it gets you to rethink, you know, your whole, uh, take on psychology itself. No, I mean, I just, just to, to lean in here a little bit more about, about the book is, um, I mean, it's it's not only a radical idea in terms of challenging our what you call folk causality, our sense that the there are causes that have effects in the future, and the future is indetermined or at the at the least at least unknown in a way that it can't send messages back to us. It's so hardwired uh, into modern subjectivity um, that it that even by thinking this stuff, you start to rub up against taboos, and indeed, it's sort of a, a wrestling with taboos to to even, um, you know, go with you along with, with your, uh, your surprising arguments, but it becomes actually even more radical than that, not in the sense that it's extreme, but actually that it helps explain a lot of things. Um, and that, uh, uh, it, it becomes a, a very broad, uh, uh, idea in terms of its effects, particularly in terms of psychology and what we think about, um, as the unconscious, but I want to I want to stay for a moment with with Jacques Vallée, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with. 
It's one of my great hopes to one day lure him onto this podcast. But though I, yeah. I have a personal connection with him and get to see him occasionally, um, it, it has always failed. <laughs> He's always on a business trip or something. So uh, well, I'm not I'm not holding my breath, but uh, I, I think a lot of us have a, a particular response when we read Valet because he allows a certain way into thinking about impossible ideas, UFOs or parapsychological ideas, uh, where he he kind of models a certain sort of reasonableness, reasonableness, uh, and and that's something you talk about as well that when confronting um, especially skeptical arguments and and the kind of you know, barrage of skepticism that people face if they if they care to uh, or have no choice uh, but to in, in many cases that there is a kind of standard of, of reason or reasonableness that that doesn't necessarily just submit uh, to the to the god of uh, of materialist rationality uh, and that indeed there's a kind of tension even between rationality and a kind of strict uh, sense as something that's you know, maintained and taught in uh, in universities and sort of undergirds scientific thinking and reason, which it has a different character and in some ways pulls in a different direction. Though I think in in, in a lot of ways we've lost um, lost that distinction unless we're you know completely beholden to some faith or supernatural thinking. And I want to emphasize that. Uh, one of the things that's so wonderful about your book, as is the case of your your great blog, The Nightshirt, which I failed to mention in my already overlong introduction. Um, people who are familiar with this one, with this blog know how wonderful a writer Eric is and how he weaves together uh, hum, uh, you know, literary examples, uh, psychology, uh, philosophy, politics, into some very interesting thinking about uh, paranormal, um, paranormal topics. Uh, but but what seems to be you know key here and what again valet kind of represents is a is a certain way of 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 being grounded as you move into impossible ideas of of continuing the work of skepticism even as you let go of some of the kind of axioms of modern thought. And you do that in, in the book, uh, in talking about science and talking about some of the skeptical arguments. But I'm also kind of curious how you did that in yourself. Like how, as someone who had a materialist background, got a PhD training in anthropology, had scientific parents, I had scientific parents too, um, how you, as you went down this path opened up by UFOs, starting to read the parapsychological literature, how you found your own sort of reason changing, how you found thinking to change as you engage these more and more uh, outsider ideas? That's an interesting question. I, my, I think I'm, I've always loved uncertainty. I'm, I've, I don't know what that personality type is <laughs> that just never, I don't, I'm not happy with it when, when anyone says, uh, you know, A is, you know, that, that, uh, anyone who speaks in definitives, um, I'm always looking for that, that, uh, way in which we might be missing something. Uh, and I guess maybe my training in anthropology, uh, you know, there was a lot of, it was very heavy on structuralism and post-structuralism and this kind of sense of language as, 
you know, it's, it's uh, you know, language does not meet reality anywhere. It just, it's kind of floating above reality. And we're constantly engaging in this, this, these language games, basically, where we're, we're, you know, where our signifiers are playing off other signifiers. And we're sort of trying to massage some sense of truth or whatever. Uh, but it's always contingent and it's always shifting. And, and, and what we know is always provisional. And so I'm, I'm, and I'm, I, I feel very at home in that idea. And, and, uh, and so even if I say I was a skeptic about ESP and stuff, I had that, if that was not, I was not a skeptic in the, I guess in the usual sense of the term is basically someone who totally disbelieves in something. I just, you know, I, I was skeptical in the, in the appropriate sense. And then like, well, hmm, I thought there's probably something else going on here. And, and, and then I, but I didn't think more deeply about it. And uh, so, so really there was no change in me that happened. I just, it was just, you know, given the, to give the time and the inclination to think more deeply and read more deeply into a topic uh, I, my sort of knee jerk tendency to think that maybe, you know, ESP and psychic phenomena were illusory somehow, and this sort of shifted. And I realized that oh, there's, there's a, there's, there's a reality here. Uh, I still though, you know, think that, that people quite often may misinterpret that reality. And in fact, the marginality of these phenomena, you know, the marginality of the paranormal in general, uh, and the marginality of parapsychology as a kind of scientific discipline that's kind of on the, sort of clinging to the edges of science, you know, very tenuously, uh, it, it tends to produce effects, knowledge effects that, that, that can, can cause people to, to maybe misinterpret uh, these phenomena or, or just to, you know, you just have to be very, very open-minded. You always have to be open-minded about even your own interpretations or, and other people's interpretations. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, I think this is something that Jeff Kripal talks about. Uh, uh, yeah, I know he talks about it in the supernatural. And I think other of his books, you know, he sort of talks about making the, the cut, you know, between, you know, the, the phenomenon uh, as maybe something, something really real and then people's interpretations of the phenomenon which you know they're going to be shaped by their culture shaped by their their psychology shaped by their their desires and 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 shape you know so you sort of you have to bracket the latter a little bit and 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 uh and always sort of maintain a sense of uncertainty about what's really going on uh, without just booting the whole thing out of your awareness or, or, or rejecting the whole thing because you can't stand that sense of uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, I guess I'm, 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 I love cognitive dissonance. <laughs> you know, I, I love that, that kind of, you know, those, those contradictions and uncertainties. That's where I, that's where I'm happy, the happiest. <laughs> and uh so I think that that helps. So I don't think Absolutely. I don't think. So I guess in short answer to your question, I don't think it's really changed my thinking. Um, it's uh, it's just a new field of interest uh, to apply a certain kind of thinking. Um, there's I'm always like torn between two different ways of going on this one. You know, one of the things you mentioned there was um, how 
in, in parapsychology, while there seems to be something going on there, people don't necessarily in, interpret it uh, correctly. And one of the interesting things about your, your, your book and made it a real gas to read was that you, you treat a, a number of, of fairly familiar examples in the history of parapsychology. It's a lot of unfamiliar ones as well. The book is full of anecdotes, if you will, uh, some of them quite well known. But what you show again and again is that even among people who are willing to accept paranormal phenomena, the possibility that what's actually going on is simply a form of precognition, uh, you show again and again is kind of resisted. And so it's like even even in the field of uh, parapsychology, that idea is is I want to say controversial because all the ideas are controversial, but in a way it's it's quite parsimonious, uh, and uh, that 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 itself is a really fascinating thing that. Um, you know, and maybe you can probably come up with a better example than me uh, uh, in terms of like a, the, the best example of the book of the way in which uh, anecdotes or stories that are familiar from parapsychology are actually redefined once you once you sort of let in this notion of precognition or, or what you call uh, time loops, which sort of help clarify the situation. Yeah, uh, I. You're absolutely right. This is this is honestly the, a, a really fascinating aspect of, of of parapsychology that I really resisted delving into too deeply in this book because I feel like it's it's actually its own <laughs> future book. Maybe <laughs> this kind of um, this resistance to the idea, this special resistance. I mean, there there are so many taboos around psychic phenomena, you know, but there's special taboos when it comes to anything that defies causal order or, 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 or that, that really screw with our sense of time, like precognition does. And what's really fascinating, and this goes again back to Jacques Belay. I mean, he, he wound up, uh, he, he's sort of been a model for me in so many ways. Um, you know, if you read his journals, which uh, are, are just, you know, honestly, if you read nothing else in, in the field of the paranormal, you know, well, maybe you cite Jeff Kripal's books, but, uh, you know, you need to read his journals. His, and, and again and again, it's funny, he has these lunches. He'll talk about these lunches with the, the SRI researchers researching remote viewing. And he'll raise the question, well, how do you know this isn't precognition? How, how do you know that what feels like, you know, your consciousness, you know, traveling across space isn't, in fact... Uh, just precognizing the feedback you're going to get later, or feedbacking some, you know, precognizing information you're going to acquire later, and, and there's no, really no way to disprove that idea. And actually, uh, Edwin May uh, has has recently kind of uh, advanced that argument pretty pretty strongly. Um, but you know, it, it I think it took a few decades, I think, for for parapsychologists to really start to really consider that idea. And what you know, what are the taboos that prevent us from wanting to think about that. And I, I, I think there are a lot of them. I think there's a whole set of, of, of taboos. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's give a concrete example of this. I mean, uh, you know, for example, phenomena that, that would normally be interpreted as telepathy. Let's say you have uh, a dream of, and, and this is where you're going to be able to come up with a better example than me, but when you have, when you dream of, of what seems to be a future event and, and someone say, oh, well, like you, you, you were aware at that moment of that event through time, you know, through space, 
when actually, according to this precognitive model, what you're doing is you're in, you're intuiting or or receiving a message, a precognitive uh, impression of that moment in the future when you will discover this fact in an ordinary way. So it's right. it's it's actually a very parsimonious explanation of a lot of things that otherwise we have to multiply our superpowers. Exactly. Um, instead, you can boil it down to this one superpower, if you will, although the way you describe it, it's not really so much of a superpower as just kind of a a condition. It's just something that sort of our minds do. And it's, yeah. su- it's such a, I mean, already I've said, said so many things that are going to be challenging to people who haven't thought about this, that maybe we should just, just stay for a moment with that basic idea of how it helps explain things uh, that otherwise require, in some ways, more elaborate ideas of uh, of the paranormal sure well the best example of what you're talking about and it's a classic example you know i'm, I'm hardly the first to write about it it's it's uh, jw dunn john william dunn uh to give an introduction for people who don't know was a uh was an aeronautical engineer well he ultimately he wound up as an aeronautical engineer in the first decades of of, of this century of the last century sorry um uh, but he, you know, he is someone who noticed all his life that he had precognitive dreams. And, and so his kind of sidelight uh, interest was in, is in precognition and in time and the question of consciousness and its relation to time. And he, you know, he published a book in 1927 called An Experiment with Time, which was basically a study of his own dreams and his own ostensibly precognitive dreams. And what he noticed was that his dreams while on the surface, yeah, they seemed to be about some remote event. But when he actually, he had this wonderful forensic engineer's mind. I mean, he was someone who actually, like, not only designed planes, but he would then study a crashed plane and tell what went wrong with that plane. So he was like a forensic, you know, scientist, you know, studying plane crashes, you know. Well, he was able to, to apply that same logic to his own dreams. And in every case, he was able to discern that, no, his dream, even if it felt at the time, like dreams do, they feel like you're immersed in a reality, they were not actually of that remote event. They were of his future learning of the event. And the way you can tell, the way you can tell this apart is when there's a discrepancy. When there's a discrepancy between the ground truth, if you will, of the event, you know, what really happened, uh, you know, as God would see it, and and the way in which the information was acquired later. And this most famous example, and it's his most famous dream, and this is quoted, and this is, dream is cited in many books on, on ESP, but his most famous example was he was uh, stationed with his regiment in fighting in the Boer War in, in South Africa, I think in 1900 or 1901. And he dreamed he was on a volcanic island a French volcanic island and it was about to blow and that 4,000 people were about to die. And he tried to get the authorities to, to listen to him that this, this, this volcano was about to erupt and you know, they wouldn't listen to him, whatever. Okay. So sometime later, he doesn't specify how many days later, but he is the, the next batch of mail arrives in his camp and he gets his latest copy of the, uh, the newspaper and the cover story of the newspaper is that Montpellier on the island of Martinique in the Caribbean 
explodes, killing 40,000 people. Okay, well, I mean, this was like remarkable. You know, this is like, how did, you know, okay, he was off by a, a zero, a digit, but you know, that's not my, you know, it, it was a pretty close correspondence there <laughs> to his dream. Um, and, but ultimately when he learned more uh, about it, and you can get on Wikipedia and find out the actual death toll. I think it was something like 36,000. Uh, and I think shortly thereafter, I mean, they, they determined it wasn't quite 40,000 people. So, so in fact, 40,000 people didn't die. But uh, he thought, when as soon as he read that newspaper, you know, 40,000 people. Um, so that's a close correspondence to his dream. It's not a close correspondence to reality. Um, and uh, there, there are other examples of this even in his own work. But you start to scrutinize. Um, you can find these. I call them in my book. He doesn't use this term, but I call them tracers um, because you know a, a tracer is something. You know, it's like a, a if you wanted to study the flow of water or flow of a fluid, you would pour a dye in, and 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 the tracer will tell you where it's flowing. Well, a tracer can kind of tell you where your information is coming from. And uh, when you apply that logic, that kind of forensic logic, studying precognitive experiences, um, you know, dreams are the most famous precognitive experiences, but, but um, they're all kind of precognition manifests in all other ways, too. Uh, often, there's no way to tell. So you're just kind of left wondering. But, but sometimes there is those discrepancies. And those discrepancies, again and again, in my experience, point to your own future learning experience, your own, the way, you know, the sort of slightly distorted way you learn about something later and maybe your own train, your own thoughts about that event uh, rather than the event itself in objective reality. And this is a beautiful, really a very beautiful and very simple idea. And it, it, and as you said, it is very parsimonious. It, it really kind of takes the whole notion of precognition out of this domain of the of the supernatural or spooky or whatever, and it really makes it okay. This is about somehow our continuity in time, our own continuity in time, our own brain line. As as J. W. Dunn was the term, that was the term he used, the brain line. We would now, in physics, they speak of the world line of an object or a person. Uh, through time, uh, well, that's that's really what it brings us back to. I think uh, these precognitive experiences that are really about our own learning, our own future learning experiences. Great. I want to stop here and now go into a little bit into some science stuff because I want to, you know, really. I, I suspect people are going. Wait a second. This parson parsimonious. That's not parsimonious. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> So I think the two where I'd like to go is to first talk about Daryl Bem's research, which I think also as as uh, as May said and other people have talked about, you know, is, is really some of the most solid parapsychology research evidence that we've gotten. Uh, frequently replicated skeptics will have another account of it. Of course, we can't address all of those issues. You can dive in online. But they're fascinating uh, studies, which seem to give some support to this precognition of the, of the brain line. And then uh, from that to talk about some of the general strategies that skeptics use to, to knock out this as well as related 
uh, parapsychology phenomenon because you you handle those things very well and very uh, uh, you know bal- in a very balanced way in your book. But let's let's start with 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 Daryl Bem's uh, remarkable research. Yeah, no, his his work is really really amazing, and it's it's his experiments. I mean, there's been a lot of really great parapsychology. Well, a lot of you know, striking parapsychology experiments that, you know, certainly they, they will have high P values that show, you know, really high significance um, on some, you know, relatively boring kind of task, you know, that's, that's uh, hard. It's hard to get excited about most, most parapsychology studies, the same way it's kind of hard to get excited about most psychology studies or most scientific studies in general. I mean, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're not that, clever but you know the great the great experiments when you, when you read the history of science the great experience experiments have a certain wit about them and they're they're just wonderful stories if nothing else and and that's the beauty i think of daryl bem's uh feeling the future experiments the feeling the future was the name of his 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 paper very controversial and to many people very upsetting paper that that he published in 2011 um uh, uh, where he basically conducted this, this series of, of, I think it was nine experiments over the course of, I think, nearly a decade, uh, where he took the, he used very large numbers of, of students. Uh, you know, most psychology experiments use, use students as their subjects. He used very large numbers of students in very simple designs that were easily replicated. His idea was he wanted these experiments to be replicated by other, other labs, you know, to, to sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, confirm or disconfirm what he was finding. But what was brilliant about them was that he took very classic psychology paradigms and just, and flipped them uh, in, in terms of their, the order of cause and effect. So, for instance, in his priming experience, he took, you know, priming is where you, uh, is sort of a study of implicit, what's now, what's now called implicit processing, but used to be called the unconscious, basically. And that's where you uh, will have, have the participants engaged in task like, like um, choosing, choosing two options on a, on a computer screen. But before they make the choice, you flash subliminally you, sub, you subliminally flash a picture over one of the options one of the other the options that's that's designed to make make it more or less favorable and this subliminal priming uh uh effect is supposed to bias your choice and it's you know it's been dem- widely demonstrated in all kinds of contexts well what daryl bem decided well let's let's invert the causal order of this let's let's make have the have the participant choose one of two curtains on a keyboard, but then, you know, after then flash a prime after their choice. And, and, and what, and what he found was these primes, you know, after they made their choice <laughs> influenced their prior behavior or seemed to. I and mean, that's the, that's the, the, the conclusion you can draw from the results. Um, and he, uh, you know, another type of experiment was, uh, uh, facilitation of recall, which is where, you know, study, you know, if you, if you are exposed to a word list and then, uh, and then you study a cert- certain words that were on that list, then you're going to be more likely to replicate those words on, in, in, on a final test of the material. Well, what he did was again, invert the order where, you know, you study a list of words, then you take a test 
And then after the test, you're exposed to a certain, certain of those words versus others. And again, he found that the ones you were exposed to later after the test, it seemed to, it seemed to influence the students' responses on the test. So he, he, influenced, he, he inverted the causal order or the, or the temporal order, let's just put it that way, uh, in these classic ex- experimental paradigms of psychology and got these significant results. And then multiple other researchers then replicated successfully um, these studies. And they're just, um, they're just like wonderful little gems of, of, you know, this is what, you know, experimental research should be always. It should have this wit to it. And that's what he, I think, brought to, uh, brought to parapsychology. Um, and, you know, he's a, he's a very kind of mild mannered, quiet guy, but, you know, he's got, he's got this mischievousness to him. Uh, I think that probably, you know, it comes from his own background. He was, uh, a, a, he actually is a, a mentalist, a practicing mentalist, uh, a magician who, in fact, got into the field of parapsychology because he was invited to, you know, often parapsychologists want to have a professional magician come in so that they can sort of be aware of any possible fraud or cheating or, or any ways in which they could be deceived in their experimenting. And he was brought in, uh, I think, in the early 90s to, to sort of play that role, even though he himself was a skeptic. And, uh, and he sort of had that role in some, some, uh, some research um, by a uh, researcher named Charles Honerton. And, uh, but then in the process, he discovered, hey, there's actually something here. Uh, and he did his, his own due diligence and realized, hey, this is an interesting field and went on to do, again, this feeling the future research, which is some of the most interesting parapsychology research uh, ever performed. One of the things, the outcomes of it, and again, the uh, sign of its wit, uh, even if unintentional, is that the results were robust enough that it caused a kind of crisis of anxiety inside the whole field of social psychology because people were like, look, if these kinds of results could appear, then there's clearly something wrong with our whole experimental method. And then people go back and they start, you know, re-looking at, at previously successful uh, studies and discover that they're not getting the same results, which is a part of a much larger problem and replicability, which we won't talk about here, but is definitely one of the, you know, parasites eating away at the, at the force of, you know, scientific, uh, uh, scientific authority. But of course, again, a more parsimonious explanation is that there is some capacity in the nervous system and the brain to, in some sense, and sense uh, its future states. And you spend a couple of chapters in your book uh, talking about the possible scientific explanations for this. You look at consciousness, you look at what do we know about consciousness? What are some models of the brain? How could we, how could this be true in a quantum reality? But I think the idea that, that hits me the most um, is, the, is the fact, which seems to have not really been absorbed by popular culture to the extent that it should, that if we live in an Einsteinian universe, if Einstein, you know, leaving aside the problem of quantum physics and how we connect it and all that, that's a whole other conversation. But just taking Einstein, the, you know, the theory of general relativity as basic good description of what's going on, that we live in a, uh, a space-time block, that everything is utterly determined and, in fact, 
uh, all we're really doing is kind of, if you will, reading off of a groove that has is already there. It's already lined. The past is there. The future is there. And we're just somehow, for some reason, kind of flowing along an absolutely determined space-time block, which uh, his teacher Minkowski uh, named the space-time block. And I guess you, you mentioned in your book that um, the comics artist Alan Moore talks about it more as like a space-time football with a big bang mm-hmm. at one end and a big crunch or whatever happens at the other end. But the basic idea is determinism, that if we accept that Einsteinian universe, then things are determined, totally, absolutely. And in that, in that scenario, it's easier to understand why it might be the case that in certain odd circumstances, which may or may not involve the great, you know, uh, you know, always nebulizer of invoking quantum physics, but uh, for for whatever reason, it's easier to understand why that is possible in a determined universe than in an open universe. If we're really in an open universe, spilling forward with a kind of chaotic uh, indeterminacy at the heart of the ongoing unfolding of reality, which is a, another position that people take, then it's harder to accept precognition. Because you're like, but it's not even determined yet. Like, how do we, how do you get a message from the future when the future is is a kind of chaotic possibility or a, a superposition state or something like that? But if you accept the Minkowski space-time block, if you accept determinism, then it's easier to understand. And so one of the questions I had is that while you, you bring this up in the book a number of times, deter, the deterministic universe... It it doesn't. It, I, I never really get the sense that you fully take it on, or at least that you that you start to really think about what does it mean to think and be, and the psychological problems you deal with. And there's you know there's so many interesting aspects of human experience that you talk about in your book, but all of them in some ways are are really shifted and challenged in many cases if we fully accept determinism, lack of free will, the whole, the whole ball game. So I, I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit about determinism and how significant you see it is for the understanding of precognition, but also just about it as, you know, a way of, of looking at, at reality, which is something that, uh, something in us resists very, very strongly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is, uh, yeah, this is the big question. And it's honestly, it's so big, as you say, that I kind of, this is another one that I kind of left out of the book, because it, it just, it's just a whole, it's, it's really a book in and of itself. And it's something I have actually written about on my blog a bit. I've sort of written kind of more personally on my blog about my own kind of struggles with this idea. And, and my own struggles with it, well, not really struggles with it, but, but how it actually meshes really well with my own, my own kind of, uh, I guess, spiritual path or practice or whatever, which, you know, is heavily, I'm, I won't call, I'm not, I don't call myself a Zen Buddhist, but it's been heavy, the most heavy, I guess, influence on my own, uh, philosophical, spiritual thinking has been Zen over the years. It's something I've come back to again and again in my life. And it, honestly, the block universe, while initially I found it really repugnant, 
I find it repugnant sort of the same way I find I used to find Calvinism repugnant. You know, this kind of idea of predestination or whatever. I think we all have kind of, especially in America, we have this knee-jerk, you know, hatred of anything that seems to foreclose uh, openness in the future somehow or indeterminacy in the future. Um, you know, it's a very we're a very individualistic culture, and somehow that entails this kind of um, open-endedness of things. Well, the more I del- delved into this material, the more I engaged with my own precognitive dreams and precognitive experiences and thought about the implications, the less it bothered me and the less this sort of de- determinism bothered me and the more I it became excited by it. But it's very hard to explain why it's exciting. <laughs> and uh, it's... It's it well. Let me put it this way: there is an, a kind of attitude, a spiritual attitude that you find in Zen, you find else in other other Eastern traditions, and I'm, I'm sure all in all traditions. There's there's a certain attitude which advocates viewing our position and our ourselves as passive observers of our lives, uh, as sort of taking the role of witness uh, to what happens. And, and there's a kind of paradoxical power, empowerment that comes from uh, sort of stepping back and saying, well, look, this is you're sort of watching yourself kind of from a distance. There's this weird empowerment that comes from that. Uh, and it's the, the Zen tradition, which, again, is just I, I, I keep coming back to because it's the one I know the best. It, 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 it has a lot to say about how, how the power of that of that perspective and that that kind of detached uh perspective of kind of watching yourself watching your thoughts watching your behavior you know all of a sudden you you become a much more skillful person and a much more witty person (laughs) when you when you sort of step back and stop a mat stop being weighed down by this baggage this this hang-up of whether i'm you know utilizing my free will in exactly the right way and and uh, when you stop thinking about free will as a problem, um, it's really kind of blissful. And but that was not—that's not you know. It takes a little bit of sitting with this idea to kind of get to that point. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I think this is a kind of a future direction that I'll be probably going, maybe in a future book or something, where I kind of uh, try to invite people into a kind of block universe um, view of things uh, as, as really something very, very exciting. Uh, it's incredibly exciting, for instance, to, um, okay, first, you know, to, to discover that you've had a precognitive dream, I mean, very vividly, as you did with your UFO dream. And that's a very striking experience. You know, to, to pay attention to your dreams and then discover that you're having these these uh, you know, these, these, uh, that your brain is somehow bringing you a message across time from some future, you know, time that maybe, you know, maybe a day in the future, it could be years in the future. That's a very, it's a very powerful, um, uh, exciting and, and just sublime experience. But what's particularly exciting I've found on a few occasions, and it's only happened a, a few times, but I, I cherish them, uh, where the dream has wound up representing my own looking back from that future vantage point. 
Um, and I write about this also on my blog. Um, uh, but when you experience yourself across time, experience this, 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 uh, connection, like a wormhole to yourself in the past. Um, it's just, it's very, it's, it's a very powerful, I would call it a gnosis, you know, with, with, uh, with a small g. Um, and there's, there's something very, very exciting about it. And I, this is, and what, what I do talk about in this book is the notion, uh, which is supported, I think, by a certain thread in, in current quantum physics, too, that the, our current, we are constantly creating the past. We can't change the past from something that pre-existed, but we are looking back our experiences now are actually shaping that past in this four-dimensional block universe. And when we start having experiences of how that occurs and dreams are the offer, I think the best, easiest, most accessible way of seeing that actually happening in sort of real time, real 4D time, um, it's, it's incredibly exciting. And uh, so I personally have come to a place where I'm no longer threatened by, by the block universe, but I, I totally see why people uh, are threatened about it. And this is something we'll come back to, uh, you know, next uh, in the next segment of our interview, because uh, it goes directly to, uh, I think, the experience of, of two very precognitive authors that I talk about in the book, you know, Phil Dick being one of them, but also Morgan Robertson, the author who, who many feel predicted the Titanic disaster, uh, because there's a there's a way in which um, uh, there's that that block universe not a, it doesn't necessarily offer it, it, some can see it as kind of a prison, but it can also see it as kind of absolution, as kind of uh, as a very liberating thing, and I think neurotics <laughs> often see it that way. But we can we can talk about that. Sure, we, we can talk about yeah. We only we have a few more minutes now, and and I and I do invite people to come and listen to the the, the second uh, episode. Um, one of this this discussion reminds me of uh, one person we've had on the show a number of years ago, Michael Hoffman, who who write blogs on egodeath.com, and he has a very st- strong. Uh, argument that what what occurs in in intense uh, overwhelming psychedelic experience is the opportunity to kind of die to the self that believes that it's making decisions and to kind of grok uh, the space-time block and that it has a sort of there's a soberness about it but there is also uh, a, a gnosis about it and when I was reading your book and thinking about Hoffman, because I'm, I'm very intrigued by determinism, even as I resist it, not even just personally, but also philosophically, because I'm very, I'm, I really like the, the flowing, open-ended kind of universe. You know, maybe I'm very American that way. Yeah. But I'm also, on the, at the same time, very attracted to, to thinking in, in terms of determinism. And one thing I, I realized in your book, and we'll, we'll again talk about this next, next time, uh, hopefully through through talking about Jung, is you 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 show again how the idea of precognition solves uh, other paranormal problems. One of which is is synchronicity that a lot of which is such a fuzzy concept that people use in all sorts of ways, and it is not clear even in Jung's accounts. And that some of what we think of in terms of of synchronicity is uh, is is better understood as again a kind of precognition. You're seeing already ahead. 
to the connection between these kind of two elements that appear to be arising uh, simultaneously. Uh, and it's interesting that that people associate uh, intense psychedelic experience so much with synchronicity that like large doses of LSD, you're going to get synchronicity, 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 synchronicity in so many different kinds of accounts. And I'm like, well, why is that? What, what's going on there? Is like the world changing and suddenly becoming more archetypal? I, I don't know what that means. But from this angle, you're like, look, if, if something like psychedelics can in, bring you, bring one closer to the grokking of the blo- of the space-time block of the reality of determinism, then it would make sense that part of the froth of that, uh, or the ref- reflux, if you will, of that uh, acknowledgement would be an uptick in, in synchronicities, which have this kind of deterministic character. This is just purely speculation, no, but it's I, the I kind of agree. thing that your book does. <laughs> That's absolutely great. I, I would just, can I just step in briefly and say one thing is that you s- said back in your intro to my, to the last, your, your last previous question, you kind of mentioned that these things might happen, you know, rarely. I just want to step in and say, one of my arguments is that these things are happening all the time and that this is actually, it's just our noticing of it that, that is, is rare for various reasons, but that this is the very basis of, I think, of cognition. And, and I think not only that, I think it's the basis of life. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect that it's the basis of life. I mean, this, this kind of re- retrocausal uh, operation. So, well, you know, this is a great place to end for now. And I'm so glad that we we're, we're, we're talking again next week because we didn't get to so much stuff. And, but once again, we, uh, we we're talking with Eric, Wargo's new book, Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, and the Unconscious. Again, I'm not a huge consumer of paranormal literature, though I respect and admire it. But this book is uh, uh, just a treat and uh, just a mind gas on many, many different levels. Uh, And I'm really look forward to talking to you next week, Eric. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too. Okay, folks, until next week, keep your minds open. (laughs) 